Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. The fundamentals of a democratic society are being closed out. The elections now, they're, they're wealth elections. They are elections that allow unlimited money to nullify the votes. And if they can't nullify the votes by sheer money in terms of the candidates who they espouse, uh, they will do it by voter suppression. Hello, welcome to Mr. Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Ralph Nader, who, uh, of course, you know, of course, you've heard of. I, I'm fascinated by Nader. He has had, I think, one of the most interesting lives and one of the most important lives of, of, of any American uh, around today. Uh, I think people of my generation, including me, mostly know him for the 2000 and 2004 presidential runs. But before that, he created like willed into being this remarkable consumer movement that has affected almost everything in our lives are the what is in the cars we drive how the food we eat is checked i mean it it's one of the most remarkable examples of policy entrepreneurship uh, that there is in existence he was named one of the most hundred influential americans by life and by the atlantic and by time so I've wanted to talk to him for a while just to understand how he thinks. I mean, he's still out there doing interesting work. He's got a podcast. He's got a new book out called How the Rats Reformed Congress. Um, you know, he's tireless, just a tireless human being. One thing that I want to note, because people might wonder where it is, we talk about third-party candidacies in here. Uh, I, I made a decision here. It's a decision I've made in other podcasts like this one to not talk about the thing that I did not believe I could add any light on. Ralph Nader has been asked many, 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 many times about the 2000 election. He has a very standard spiel he gives on that. I read it when I was um, preparing for this, and I did not want to just repeat that. I was not going to change his mind. He's not going to change your mind. So we talk about third-party candidacies and I guess a little bit about his in a high-altitude way. I, I wanted a podcast that was more about the way he thinks and about other moments in his career than a podcast that walked back along ground that I think has been pretty well-trod, um, and so much so that I don't see a lot of light left in it. But we do talk about Howard Schultz's potential candidacy. We do talk about um, you know, how voters make decisions between these sides, so, so we get it a bit. Anyway, I think it's a pretty interesting uh, conversation. It's fascinating to to hear to hear the way he thinks about things, and um, I hope you enjoy it as well. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here's Ralph Nader. Ralph Nader, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, let me begin here. What does it mean to you to be a citizen? What is the role of a citizen? 
Well, the role, obviously, is that you're able to vote. I mean, that's the primal obligation in a democracy, although it's minimal engagement. Being a citizen is uh, is, is something that requires an adjective, which is uh, public. Public citizen means you don't just take care of your private life, your family, your kids, but you go into the public arena. You go to town meetings. You go to marches, demonstrations. You go to courtrooms. You go to neighborhood gatherings to deal with issues uh, of the community, issues that, as Thomas Jefferson said, of self-governance, uh, things that you can't solve for yourself and you've got to solve together with other people. So it means working at different hierarchies. You, you got to work at the local, state, national, international level. And uh, there are enough people around, so there are particular inclinations, temperaments, and choices or provide more than is necessary, uh, more than the 1% that is ever necessary, reflecting public opinion, to turn public policy around, no matter how powerful the corporations are or the the opponents. uh, 1% of the people organized in the congressional districts, for example, representing public opinion, uh, could get Medicare for all, could get living wage for all, could get all the things through Congress because... You know, after all, there are only 535 of them, and we're millions back home, and we know their names. So it's really astonishing to me that people don't know that the uh, the phrase of action in a civic democracy is, it's the Congress people, it's the state legislature. Those are the smallest but most powerful branches of government under our constitutions. In your most recent book, um, well, actually, I think it's now your penultimate most recent book, you, you, you have a very, you, you're a rapid book writer. As somebody who's been working on a book for years, I quite admire it. But in, in one of your recent books, you have a Eugene Debs quote about, he's asked, what has most disappointed you in your time in public life? And he says that the American people could have anything they want if only they would organize to get it. Do you think the absence of the kind of organization you're talking about and that Debs at that point was lamenting, do you think that is something? Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, a democracy is nothing without civic organization. And, you know, we can exercise individually our free speech. uh, But if we don't lock arms together, we cannot confront the ultimate locked arm organization called the the global corporation. Because the government is organized, the corporations are organized, and they know why. Uh, if we don't organize, uh, they can uh, individuate us. And that's what the consumer merchandising strategy is, is to individuate our choices, never to talk about cooperative buying as consumers, never to talk about consumer co-ops. Uh, it's always individual choices, however ridiculous the choices may be between Pepsi and Coca-Cola, for example, or MasterCard and Visa. The big problem today is lack of civic motivation. And why? Because people think of themselves as individuals, and then they say, well, who am I? I I don't have any power. I don't count. I better just pay attention to my private life and try to get by. And that's where the challenge is. The challenge for civic organizers is to show what happens and what has happened in American history 
in the pursuit of justice when people band together. They band together as workers and unions. So the organized opposition tries to get anti-union laws in and tries to get anti-union law firms in to bust up efforts. And we want to band together as consumers. And guess what? It's very hard to develop communications, consumer to consumer, uh, to band together. And the co-op laws are often not that facilitative. There's virtually no way to band together as small taxpayers against uh, corporate tax escapes, loopholes, tax havens abroad, and their immunities under the tax system. So the issue is civic motivation arises when people think that if they spend their time together, it's going to make a difference. Is there any country or territory that let's say is over 30 million people that has a kind of ongoing civic motivation that you're discussing here? Uh, Switzerland is probably the first uh, uh, choice here in terms of answering your question. Uh, They're organized into cantons. Um, They have a vibrant uh, consumer cooperative economy. In fact, uh, last I checked, two of the largest food co-ops represented almost 50% of food sales. And one of them uh, has a newspaper and uh, affords um, adult education, sells auto insurance, not, not just food. They also... Uh, rotate their elected officials so that the status of a elected official, we would call them politicians, is higher in Switzerland than almost any other country in the world because <laughs> they rotate. A lot of them come in and out. Uh, the Scandinavian countries have a tradition of cooperatives and strong labor unions, uh, so they are more advanced. When you look at the Scandinavian countries, do you think that their particular kinds of successes reflect institutions or or cultures and, and, and compositions? Uh, an, an objection I often hear people give when I say, oh, you know, look at what they're doing in Scandinavia with flex security or whatever it might be is, look, these are small countries. They have very little on average diversity and they have very distinct cultural backgrounds. And that, that might work in very particular places. I mean, some people point in America to Utah and say, hey, look, that, that kind of looks like that, a somewhat different political consensus, but very high levels of civic motivation and engagement. But that when you're dealing with a place as broad and big and strange and diverse and disparate as America, you can't get that because it's not something you can will into being through policy. It, it kind of it, it speaks to something that is deeper in a country's history and its and its makeup. Well, let's look at it historically, uh, Ezra. In the United States, the strongest co-ops were started by immigrants and the solidarity of Im- immigrants, like the Finns in uh, the Upper M- Midwest and their co-ops. Uh, so. On that point, uh, you're right. On the other hand, about 115 years ago, Norway was terribly poor, unbelievably impoverished. And, of course, they had a homogeneous uh, country. So they didn't do it through homogeneity. They did it through uh, democracy. They did it through initiatives uh, that we call now social democratic politics. And now they're the most prosperous And, uh, you know, they have a social safety net that's so comprehensive that the problem in Norway is boredom uh, rather than insecurity, anxiety, dread, and fear. Uh, The other point that's important is that a lot of our early banks in in the Industrial Revolution were started by immigrants, like the Immigrants Bank of New York. Uh, So that was solidarity there. Uh, The most powerful producer and consumer cooperative 
uh, a multi-billion dollar operation in the world is in the Basque country in Spain, as you know, Madragón. That has a solidary uh, ethnicity uh, to it. So you can't really come out one way or another. There are examples where it's institutional reform, political reform, economic reform across the board. And there are examples when you have the uh, primordial solidarities of ethnicity that get these institutions underway. Uh, credit unions, which now have some 70, 80 million members in our country, came from Quebec, the French Canadians. They brought it down to New Hampshire over 100 years ago. Uh, would it have happened without that kind of solidarity? Probably it wouldn't have happened as soon. So one of the things that I'm interested in your thought is, is one reason I wanted to begin the conversation around citizenship is it is important to the way you see the world, as I understand it, to get over this chasm between passive citizenship and active citizenship, between citizen and public citizen. And what's really interesting to me in your work is that you have a similar dynamic around capitalism. If citizen, public citizen plays that role in your idea of government, it seems to me that an engaged consumer plays that role in your idea of how capitalism should work. Can you talk a bit about what you think consumer, the role of the consumer should be if consumers were motivated? Well, first you start with what's the uh, grounding basis of any democratic society? It's civic activity. It starts with two conversations between citizens and then grows, and then more and more people talk about it. It starts moving into the electoral and political arenas, and uh, it starts moving through the media. And that's one reason, I think, why the civic community has been shut out. That is, one of the indices of a deteriorating democratic society is when they close out from the mass media the civic community. And we've had experience with that. In 2016, we had the greatest con a congregation of civic thinkers and doers brought together on more issues and redirections in American history at Constitution Hall. 162 presenters, people who really changed America, people who are thinking hard about the distribution of power and justice in our country. And they were completely blacked out, even by public radio and by PBS. Uh, it got uh, virtually no coverage. And it was all about Trump in those uh, days. So when it comes to capitalism, you have to have adjectives again. Uh, small business capitalism is a part of a vibrant democracy. I mean, I grew up, my father was a restaurateur, and he had a bakery and a delicatessen. He was a capitalist. But corporate capitalism, uh, giant corporate capitalism, uh, is antithetical to democracy. It is uh, inherently concentrated hierarchical power, inherently secretive, inherently transnational in the sense that it has no allegiance to community or country other than to exploit them and abandon them at will wherever it can find uh, better profits and cheaper labor and more permissive governments. So we do have to make that distinction. I don't think young people today are making those distinctions because if you just say capitalism, for heaven's sake, I mean, every society known to human beings has markets. And if you have markets, unless they're all government-owned, you're going to have capitalism. So the issue is concentration of power. That's why I don't like isms, because you say, well, it's communism, socialism, uh, anarchism, capitalism. Uh, the issue is how do these systems deal with deconcentrated and accountable power? Because if they don't, um, they're all going to produce bad results. So let me push you on this a little bit, because I, I think this is interesting. A lot of people would say, well, democracy is what 
people choose. Whatever the people in a democracy are choosing, like that is a democracy as long as they're freely able to choose it. And so to say that large corporations are antithetical to democracy in a country where a lot of people like large corporations choose to uh, support them both the dollars and and obviously by not voting in politicians who will break them up, destroy them, put caps on on concentration and and so on. What does it mean to say they're antithetical to democracy in that context? Well, in a sense, they can't tolerate clean elections. Uh, they love a two-party duopoly they can manipulate. They don't like third parties. They don't like access to justice in the courts. Uh, look how they're trying to restrict the law of torts, one of our great private freedoms inherited from England, where you don't have to ask permission if you're wrongfully injured. You go to a contingent fee lawyer, and you're supposed to be guaranteed uh, a right of trial by jury. Well, they've been blocking that more and more and more in the last 40, 50 years under this outrageous phrase, tort reform, instead of calling it tort deform. Then the other pillar of freedom is freedom of contract. Conservatives are supposed to love that. And 99% of our contracts are fine print contracts written by the vendor for the vendor's privilege and power. In other words, we are contract peons, contract servitude is the reign, uh, coin of the reign uh, in, in the American economy. So you have two or the major pillars, the two pillars of private law that's supposed to spell the fundamentals of a democratic society are being closed out. The elections now, they're, they're wealth elections. They are elections that allow unlimited money to nullify the votes. And if they can't nullify the votes by sheer money in terms of the candidates who they espouse, uh, they will do it by voter suppression. Uh, they, they have their proxies, the politicians are their proxies. And so they do gerrymandering where the politicians pick their voters. Imagine that instead of the voters picking uh, the politicians. Uh, and they block uh, ballot access. I've had a lot of experience in uh, noticing that in a state like Texas, it's more difficult to get on the ballot than in 10 European countries combined or in Canada. Uh, and and it, when you block candidates from getting on the ballot, you're blocking meaningful choice by voters. So it affects the value of the vote as well as the right of a candidate to give voices and choices uh, broader than the two parties dialing for the same commercial dollars. And then it's the military and foreign policy where these giant corporations profiteer and have a vested interest in war. They have a vested interest in uh, distorted public budgets where our public works and infrastructure are crumbling uh, for lack of resources to repair while the money goes to the American empire blowing up infrastructure in society in countries like Iraq and Libya. Yes, and one can go just on and on. But notice that these corporations have even stripped their owners of any kind of voice and power. So, that, so they're even against one of the pillars of capitalist theory, which is if you own property, you're supposed to have reasonable control over its deployment. Well, they've turned it completely upside down, and the managerial corporate bosses now run the company, and they can do almost anything they want, including Apple buying back $100 billion worth of stock without even asking their owners for permission. Just Tim Cook and one guy presents it. It improves the metrics for their 
executive compensation, and they get a rubber ba- a rubber stamp board of directors say, okay. Let me ask you something about the way you sort of frame this. All these corporations, not to sound too much like Mitt Romney, which is not something I'm usually accused of, are made up at some level of people. Do you think that in, in the way you see it, that being at the high level of big multinational corporations changes people? Or that the corporations sort of have their own incentives and the, the, the people sort of end up being part of them? I mean, when I talk to a lot of folks in, in, in these worlds, and I've had to do a fair amount of business reporting in my time, yeah, it's like they don't tend to like gerrymandering. They tend to be pretty narrowly concerned with their own incentives. I don't think that many of them would say, I'm out here trying to start wars so I can make more missiles. I take the point that in many cases they end up supporting those things or other things that one might find objectionable. But do you find that to be a fact of the psychology of humans inside corporations? Or do you find that to be a fact of corporate organizations that end up acting as if they are organisms unto themselves and the human beings end up just sort of as, as cogs in the, in, the, uh, in the inorganic machine there? Well, you've put it uh, properly. They live two lives. Some of them teach Sunday school. They're kind to their family. They're fairly good neighbors down the street. Uh, But once they get into a corporate structure, they're corporatized, which means that the uh, unilateral maniacal obsession of judging all the moves of a corporation by sales, profits, and executive bonuses uh, shape them and control them. And and they that they have to be held responsible because they're not totally powerless in a corporate structure. They can turn it around. That's why if you turn the CEO around on an issue in a big corporation, you can turn the corporation around. Uh, when Arch Bow, the CEO of uh, Allstate, decided to promote airbags and irritated the heck out of GM, Ford, and Chrysler uh, in the 70s, he turned around the whole company. Uh, he got on TV with me on the, you know, Mike Douglas or Merv Griffin show. Uh, so on the one hand, they are shaped by the corporation. On the other, because power is so concentrated in corporations at the top, uh, they don't have any excuses. They can change it. Uh, but it's easy to go with the flow, and that's how they make huge amounts of money. And that's where the uh, the temperament, that's where the inclination of people who don't have much courage Uh, or sense of posterity or sense of justice uh, end up. Let me ask you one more question on on, on this topic. In my more pessimistic moments, one of the things that I think is if a system requires large amounts of large numbers or large fractions of the population, or even not that large, just a lot of people, to be constantly deeply engaged, doing the work of a public citizen, of an active consumer— the system is often going to fail. Most people don't enjoy doing that kind of work. They're busy. They're tired. That we almost need a system that is somehow better at operating a little bit on its own than asking that much. And I recognize that that is a theory in which you're throwing out a lot of what makes democracy beautiful. And you've had such a long career in this space, and I think I've seen the difficulty of getting people to consistently and over long periods of time demonstrate the kind of engagement that you have. And, you know, and I think some of that is characterological, right? You clearly like being engaged. I like being engaged, but a lot of people don't. I'm curious where you come down on that. I'm, I'm curious if you think there's just a flaw in the systems or just a, a nut we haven't cracked. Well, let's parse what you're saying because it, that would it, probably invi- be good, yes. it invites a, a <laughs> lot of nuance. It invites a lot of nuance. Number one, as I've said, 
in many books, but most prominently in a little paperback I put out a few years ago called Breaking Through Power, It's Easier Than We Think, American advances in justice have overwhelmingly uh, been started and finished by very few people. Even the civil rights movement never had more than 1% of the people spending a few hundred hours a year linked with one another pushing for civil rights in the 60s, for example. It never takes more than 1%. If you have majority opinion behind you, or you can build majority opinion by disclosing how unsafe cars were, for example, in the 60s, it never takes more than 1%. How much is that in congressional districts? That's 2.5 million people. Well, let's be even more realistic. I don't think it takes more than one quarter or 1%. So let's say that's 700,000 people uh, distributed in Uh, 435 congressional districts, committed uh, to an interlocking move on Congress, summoning senators and representatives to their own town meetings and agendas, spending three to five hundred dollars a year. That's about what a hobby goes for, you know, for stamps and coins. And they spend somewhat more for bird watching uh, and opening up an office or two with two or three people in every congressional district full time. Now, is that much of an exertion? If you add it all up, Ezra, it doesn't come close in total person hours to what people spend either watching birds or playing serious bridge tournaments. So let's get it down to scale and not exaggerate it. Because uh, if we allow ourselves to exaggerate what is needed, you can't get there. You can't expect 50% of the people, 20% of the people uh, to drop what they're doing. Single moms, you know, daycare, two, two jobs, low pay, commute. But if you break it down, how many people did it really take to put the environmental issue on the map in, the, in, in, in 1970? How many people did it take to alert Reagan that uh, Republicans and Democrats wanted him to sit down and negotiate with the Soviets on arms control? It's shockingly small, but they're reflecting public opinion. It's just what Abraham Lincoln said. With public sentiment, you can do almost anything. Without it, it's very, very difficult. Now, go back to our elementary school. Elementary school uh, has as one of its purposes, inadvertent or otherwise, is to raise uh, students into believing uh, how powerless they are. They're not, they're not taught any kind of civic engagement with the community, with few exceptions. Uh, they're not taught civic skills. I mean, they can be taught free of information laws and how to use them at the state or federal level in middle school. In fact, uh, they can be taught tax law, contract law, and um, and, tech, uh, and um, tort law, the rudiments of it in high school. Uh, I know a corporate tax lawyer who's turned t- teaching tax law in, in high school. And I said, John, I mean, isn't this a little heavy? He says, no, not at all. They get it. They don't have to go into it as deep as law schools do. But we're, we're raising uh, 12 classes of children as we speak from K to 12 uh, in, into studied powerlessness. And they're told in all kinds of ways, forget it, believe, don't think, forget it, Uh, you know, just uh, uh, learn how to manipulate a computer screen and write code, Uh, learn how to be lucrative cogs in some big corporate wheel, wheel. don't learn how to be effective citizens. In fact, a lot of high school kids can't even tell you the the three branches of government surveys have shown. I was speaking to Hotchkiss, you know upscale school in Connecticut, 
couple of years ago, and we went to lunch, and the students who were most politically interested came to lunch. It was about 10 kids. And I said to them, who's the governor of Connecticut? They didn't even know. I said, well, how about the two senators? They didn't even know. But but let me let me push you on this because this is what this is what I think is this is where my when I am having a bad day um, when I am feeling pessimistic this is where it comes from. There's a way of framing what you're saying, and it's the way you frame it in that book, which I actually really do recommend. I think it's a wonderful book. Um, which is it would take on some level so little you could change so much with so little. But that's always been true. That's the why I bring up that Eugene Debs quote, which is from that from that tome, and the fact that consistently. Getting that kind of ongoing uh, engagement is so difficult. The fact that the greatest orators and organizers in American history have not been able to do it for consistent long periods, the fact that it gets away from them, even if they're able to do it for a minute, the fact that it doesn't sustain, it seems to me to say something about whether or not people really want that in their lives. Uh, again, I'm try- one of the distinctions I'm trying to draw is you and I clearly do. But a lot of people, they they seem they, they just want things to run well. And I don't mean that as a knock on them. It's just a, it seems true in basically every country. And so it makes me wonder whether or not this is more of a force of political nature than we sometimes want to admit. Before I get to that, because that's an important probe there, uh, we're not talking about people to be engaged on 10 issues. But people have different interests. There are, if you get 1% of people on health care, okay, uh, they don't particularly care about public transit or tax policy. But some people do care about public transit. So there's enough for everybody. So you don't have to overburden people that way. The second is, I would say half the population is so mired in just getting through the day, just trying to deal with illness and accidents and penury and and, uh, daycare and dealing with each day's tribulations, that they probably don't have time for civic engagement, although they certainly should have time to make a call or two or to vote. Uh, But that still leaves half the people. And then the other thing is, and this is something which is, shall we say, beyond our common pay grade, uh, Ezra, uh, there is something about politics that when people think about it, it strains them. It strains their brain, literally. Uh, it, it, to them, it or means it controversy. Yeah. It means slander. It yep. means exposing them at a, at a city council meeting, telling them to shut up. It means fear of being sued. Uh, it, me- it means that they don't know as, as much about the politician who can sweet talk them and circumvent them. There is a, almost a mental strain. And to that, I say, you know, it takes a lot to learn how to be a skilled bridge player. It takes a lot to be a skilled video uh, game player, but 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 it but it 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 doesn't have the strain. And I don't think we've looked enough into that problem. Well, so let me ask you. So I think that actually brings up something interesting, and it, it pulls me now. I can kind of stop being the the very pessimistic devil's advocate here. One thing that I notice is, so one, exactly what you say, I wouldn't call it strain. I think there's a repulsion from politics. I think people look at it and it's a place of bad feelings. It's a place of fighting. You don't want to talk to your family about it. It's People don't like conflict. Most of us are conflict avoidant and politics, particularly in the kinds of spaces we're talking about, is a place of, of constant conflict. But the other piece of it that I think is a little bit embedded in, in what you're talking about, something I've certainly noticed and I think of as actually the more central d- difficulty is people seem to attach much more to other people than to abstract 
policy or even non-abstract policy, very concrete, tangible policy. I mean, you know, we we you know my work for a long time has been trying to move the press from reporting so much on political personality and towards reporting more on policy. And I do find people are interested. But I also find that if I could get people to take 20% of the energy that goes into speculating about political personalities and who will run for president and who will win this election and just hold that energy on health care, if I could have gotten you know the energy that attached to the 08 and 12 and 16 elections among liberals and just held it on the Affordable Care Act, well, that would have been a better law. It would have been better in its design and it would have been better implemented. But the you know it kind of melted away when the a lot of that organization melted away. And I'm not saying Obama handled it perfectly, but when it stopped being inspiring Barack Obama, you know, and his persona, and it became like the nitty gritty of hammering out like this depress this often depressing answer, which can nevertheless help a lot of people. That that piece of it seems to me to be a problem. It's not that the numbers of people you're talking about don't get involved. It's they get involved for very short, episodic periods of time. They get involved attached to individual personalities, a Bernie Sanders, a Donald Trump, a Barack Obama, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And it's very hard then to transition their involvement to long-term policy or movement building. Well, that's true. I mean, uh, they don't like to say engage in politics, but they love to watch conflict. They watch Judge Judy. They watch Trump swearing, cussing, and putting people down. It's theater. They like to watch it, but not necessarily engage in it. So that's why you have to seize the moment. You have to seize the time. If a certain issue flares in the press, you don't say, hey, you know, this is going to take a long time. Let's roll up our sleeves. You try to seize the moments, particularly in today's media climate. And so when healthcare was at its moment and Obama dropped the public option before he even had to, uh, that's where the maximum pressure point should have come in. But, you know, we don't have a Fox network the way the other side has. It's very hard to get attention on public radio. It's very hard to get people who really know their stuff, like the doctors. Uh, Himmelstein and Wallander from Harvard Medical School on healthcare. They don't get on. If I didn't get on the mass media in the 1960s, uh, we wouldn't have the motor vehicle and highway safety laws. I keep telling the Washington Post and New York Times, why are they so ashamed of their golden age in the 1960s when they uh, put environmental uh, people on and uh, worker rights people on, civil rights people on, and and consumer rights? Why? And things happened, and legislation occurred, and the government uh, made the country better, and, and people had more opportunity in health and safety. And why don't they put these people on now? Why are they just writing features for Pulitzer Prizes instead of following the story of a citizen group trying to get something through Congress? And uh, I can never get a real answer to that. All they say is, well, you know, it's a different age. It's an Internet age. It's a short attention span age. And, and nobody's reading print newspapers. And we're going to go out of business if we don't change our mode. And we have to have more entertainment and style and arts and food and other sections in the New York Times. And uh, but They're avoiding the issue. The basic issue is, are they serious enough? to put serious people on the front media stage so these people can mobilize and get enough people to focus on the decision makers. Well, let me try to offer a, a, a media perspective on this, just trying to think about it, because what, when I hear you say that, here's what I wonder. That 50s, 60s golden age you're talking about, I'm not certain that I think, you know, when I look back at it, and you would know better, of course, 
but that when I look back at it, there was in total more serious news or even serious coverage of, of social movement. But what I do think was true was that if you got on that front page, it had a lot more potency. If, you know, you got the New Republic and the New York Times to write about highway safety in the way that you did, it was more likely you could, you know, get the attention of some members of Congress. And if you got that attention, it was also more likely they could pass a bill. Whereas now what would happen is that, you know, like the public option is a great example. I actually don't agree with you that it could have been that it was not dropped at the last minute. I I covered that and I, I have a different view. But putting aside who's right about that, that got an enormous amount of attention. It was a very serious issue. But what happened is it has got the attention as serious people got it. And I think of people like Jacob Hacker here, who knows an enormous amount about healthcare, is I, I believe still Yale um, and, and helped inject that into the public debate. Then it became a, a corresponding issue on the other side. It had Fox News. It had Rush Limbaugh. These things that didn't weren't there in the 50s and 60s and weren't there to say, oh, that would be socialism. That would be a death panel. That would be that would be that would be. And so I, I think it's not just that you have a you know, more competitive. And in some cases, I do agree, more sensationalized media environment. I think it's also that, you know, you have much less of a conveyor from the media to the Congress to legislation. Every piece of that is more broken than it was in the in the 50s and 60s and 70s, such that you could get a great story about this and it still wouldn't go anywhere, in my view. Well, my recollection, by the way, parenthetically, is that uh, Obama dropped the public option before he started negotiating what is known as Obamacare. No. Um, I mean, there were different versions of a public option, but the yeah. public option was killed by Joe Lieberman and Ben Nelson. I mean, I, I was, I yeah, covered yeah. that and they they basically said at the end, like, not only will not vote for that, Lieberman then said there was an effort to, to create a compromise where you could buy into Medicare at 55 and Lieberman said he would kill the entire bill if that compromise no, you're, was you're held right in there, the bill. But, but Obama never picked it up from the beginning and really pushed it. You're right on who, who destroyed it in the Senate. But what you said, Ezra, is accurate but incomplete. Let me give you a, a fuller picture of the difference between the 60s, 70s and now. Phil Donahue had 10 million viewers. He put on the breakthrough people in civil rights, labor, women's rights, LGBT rights, environmental people, consumer advocates. He got them before 10 million people more than once. The press picked up. Other TV picked up. They're all gone now. All the radio program people, the talk show hosts, including Larry King, overnight, huge audience. We used to get on. We would evaluate the presidential candidates. We would highlight consumer legislation. We would expose things. All gone now. The Jackson Show in L.A., the Williams Show in Boston, uh, radio. Uh, It's now junk. In fact, afternoon TV network TV is so bad that if you talk with anybody who ever thinks about public issues, they never watch it. They don't even know how bad it is. Uh, Once in a while, I turn on network TV on Saturday afternoon to see how my property is being used, how the public airways, which we all own as a people, as a commons, which is given free 24-7 to the radio and TV stations. And it's disgraceful. The liberal left has completely abandoned the radio and TV scene to the corporatists, the entertainers, the schlockers, the infomercial people, uh, the rerun endless movie uh, people, and uh, they've just abandoned it. There are 600 cable channels. There isn't one devoted to labor. 
There isn't one devoted to students. There isn't one devoted to consumer issues. There isn't one devoted to environmental issues. 600 cable channels. The left has just given it up, give up on it. So the link between citizen groups, the whole citizen community, where all this stuff starts all over the country, the link between that and what's left of the, of the media is very tenuous. So there are really a lot of differences. I don't want to idealize the 60s, 70s. We had problems with advertisers, censors, people afraid of GM. They would never mention a car uh, by make and model if it was being recalled until we broke that taboo. But by comparison, it's night and day. So let me ask you about something tactical um, in that era. I've always been very curious about the period of time after you got the the highway bill passed, the, the auto safety bill passed, and building Nader's Raiders. And I've always been very curious. When you got these young people in and said, hey, investigate the FTC or whoever it might be, what instructions did you give them? What was the what was like the, the playbook you gave Nader's Raiders to go and ferret out what was happening at a government agency or go and understand what was happening at a government agency? I give them a lot of autonomy. Uh, first of all, we had a huge amount of, uh, of resumes to pick from. So first of all, we got really motivated, knowledgeable, hardworking youngsters coming in. Second, I had them read upside down whatever is written on the Department of Agriculture or the Federal Trade Commission or the Food and Drug Administration. Third, I had them go uh, and talk with the uh, outside experts on it so that they could always call them when they needed. Uh, fourth, I introduced them uh, to the heads of the agencies. You know, I would go down with them and say, you know, the, these young people, they are fully capable of doing an evaluation of your performance and putting it together in a report. And when we got back to the office, I would tell them, if you had any trouble, uh, I, I've got your back. And at that time, you know, I could call Martin Mentz of the Post or I could call Pat Sloyan of UPI and we, we, we'd get some exposure if some uh, agency was trying to close them out. And I gave them a lot of autonomy. Then they knew that they were going to be the authors of the report. It wasn't going to be my name on the book with a footnote or an acknowledgement to Joe or Jay, Jane Schmo that they did a lot of work and thank you very much. We made them authors at a very young age and they knew they'd have a huge step up when at age 23, 24, 25, they're authors of a book which had a substantial circulation and got a lot of media coverage. And so when you looked for these people, what did you look for? I looked for a thirst for justice, a passion for justice. That is, they, they had to show some fire in the belly, not just some cognitive capabilities. That's one. The second is, were they just out to uh, burnish their resume? At that time, it was a big deal to be a Nader's Raider. Or were they seriously interested in uh, affecting change? Third, did they hog credit because they had to work with a, a group? Uh, or did they know how to share credit? Did, did they have personal skills? And fourth, and most important, were they going to stay to completion? Because, you know, September comes, they're back at school or they're out. And, uh, you know, we'd be left with one or two members of the task force and uh, it, it might not get done on time. So they, they had to stay with it like Jim Fallows stayed with it and put the book out on the Savannah River polluters uh, while he was at Harvard undergrad or a task force from Miss Porter's school. They stuck with it until they put out the report on the nursing home 
uh, abuses in America, and they testified for the House and Senate at age 18 and got a lot of mass media. Try that today. And how did you pick up on nursing home abuses as a topic you would want to focus on? How did you get from big picture, national, you know, millions of people are dying uh, in, in car accidents on the road who, who maybe don't need to, to Savannah River pollution or, or nursing homes? Well, after I, you know, got the auto and highway safety bill through with help, I didn't want to be a lone ranger and I didn't want to be a single issue person. And people didn't let me be a single issue person. They'd flood me with envelopes, sometimes uh, without return addresses, with incriminating materials about a local pollution issue, a company town in North Carolina, a paper mill uh, corporation in Maine polluting the rivers. Uh, and then third, I read a lot. I mean, I, 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 I was, you know, inherently a broad gauge muckraker from when I was 13 years old. What muck were you raking at 13? <laughs> I was uh, muckraking uh, the books on uh, the power structure. I read uh, Ida Tarbell on Standard Oil. And I, I read uh, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. Trembling with excitement while I was listening to the Yankees radio uh, station WINS. I, I was uh, dual tasking. Do you think you were an unusual kid? Not that unusual. I didn't have any contacts. Uh, I didn't have uh, money when I started. I, out. I don't mean. I don't mean like that. I mean in your personal proclivities. So you're reading, you know, muckraking books at 13. I think unusual parents and unusual elder siblings. I was the fourth of four children. I had a great big brother, and uh, he raised us the way uh, my mother and father raised us. And I, I mean, I have incredible memories of very powerful imprints. I mean, one day he brought home the Encyclopedia Americana. That was a big deal in those days, all those red-bound volumes, and we were all awed. And he said, come here, Ralph. And he pulled out uh, the H, uh, and he went to Hawaii, and he said, uh, read this. And it was, you know, page or two. And so I read it. He was about 19, 20 I was eight years younger, and I, I read it, and um, he said, what would you think? I said, well, it's uh, interesting that uh, the Hawaiians asked the Marines to come and overthrow their queen. He said, do you really believe that? <laughs> he said, let me give you a little lesson. Don't believe everything you read. The queen was not overthrown by her uh, supporters, uh, by her subordinates, by the people. This was a bunch of plantation owners, sugar, pineapple, who wanted to get rid of the queen and wanted the U.S. Marines there to protect their profits. So how do you, for, how do you forget a, a lesson like that, Ezra? You see what I mean? So in that way, I, I, I was lucky. If you were 13 today, you would have access to so much more information. I mean, anything you could possibly want in the world. It would not be a big deal to get the Encyclopedia Britannica. It would be unbelievably limiting and absurd. Do you think you'd be better or worse informed as a 13-year-old today? The curse of abundance. The fact that they can get any information at their fingertips means they don't ingest information and retain it in their memory and therefore build on it. It's what I call the curse of abundance. When that set of Americana Encyclopedia came, that was scarcity. Uh, that, that was a rarity. That, you know, tripled the number of informed pages uh, in our household. Not that we didn't have many books, but, 
it, it, it was that sense that you read them. I mean, I, I, I grew up near the first law school in America, in Litchfield, Connecticut, before Harvard and Yale Law School got started, and they recreated it, and it's a tourist attraction now. And I went there a few years ago. It was called Tapping Reeve Law School Restored, and they had uh, two large uh, bookcases, and they were all law books in America, virtually. We're on those two large book. Well, now, if you're a law student, <laughs> you're going to feel that's a pretty precious opportunity to read those books. You tend to retain it. You digest it. Now, you give a youngster a book, it's almost like you're insulting them. Do I have to carry this? One person t told me, 14-year-old recently, do I have to carry this? Is it online? I said, yeah, you do have to carry it. I think about this a lot um, in the sense of... I don't know how to think about the kind of information abundance we have now and whether it will long term make us a, a better or worse country. I want to believe it will make us better. And certainly I'm I am someone, um, you know, Tyler Cowen would call would call an infovore. Uh, I'm someone who, you know, I God, I loved when I found blogs and, and online reading and journalism and, you know, like I used to spend most of my nights in bookstores. I mean, I just like being around books and words. I find it calming. And on the other hand, I can feel the way in which there's so much now that I find it even harder to focus on any one thing. And I've kind of pulled back and read less online and more and, and more books. And I don't know if that's me just becoming older and crankier or there's really something there. Um, I, I was thinking about something you said earlier in our conversation about how people are slaves to, to contracts. And I... I think that what one something that you're saying there is that you, complexity can defeat us. An easy way to to defeat people is to make things too complex to find out what's the truth, uh, or what you're even really telling them. And I worry that spaces of unbelievable information abundance are also spaces where it's very easy to get people to turn off because it's so overwhelming. It's so impossible to know everything that why try to really know any of it. I think corporate uh, political strategies rely on complexity as a strategy because complexity shrinks the audience that could possibly confront them. This is a big Elizabeth Warren argument. And, and also, that's what uh, jargon is all about. That's what lawyers' jargon is all about. Uh, it, it's like proprietary tools to, mon uh, to further the monopoly of the legal profession. The same with the medical profession. Uh, so th this is a long-standing, far before the internet technique of, of uh, power structures is complexity, enormous detail. Look at the tax code. Uh, only a few people can understand it. And I once had lunch with the, the head of the IRS in the Carter administration, Ezra. That was an interesting thing. And I said, you know, I've been told by people the insurance part of the uh, tax code is so complex that fewer people understand it than understand Einstein's theory of relativity. What do you think? He said, I think that's right. I said, well, that is why you can't enforce it. He said, yeah, we can't even find the actuaries for expert witnesses because there's so few of them that grasp it and they're hired by the insurance companies. What do you think of Elizabeth Warren? I think she gets it on corporate power, which is very rare for liberal and progressive candidates. She gets it on Wall Street. She gets fine print contracts, which she calls mice print contracts full of traps, giving up our rights, even the right to go to court. Contract law is now cannibalizing 
tort law, the law of wrongful injury. It's getting people to sign waivers of liability, waivers of trial by jury. What no government can force you to, to give up. These contracts uh, get you to give up. And so I think she gets that. I, she, she's fairly weak on military and foreign policy, a little bit because she's afraid of it, and a little bit because she's like Bernie Sanders. She wants to concentrate on corporate power in this country uh, and, and not, not diverge into foreign and political, uh, foreign and military issues. And in a way, she's right. And I think that's why Bernie got so far, by the way, in 2016, bread and butter issues, corporate issues, corporate power, uh, living wage, full Medicare for all, uh, free college tuition, on and on. And uh, he wasn't uh, he wasn't distracted by getting embroiled in the Israeli-Palestinian issue, for example. From your perspective, is there a meaningful difference between Sanders and Warren? Yes, I think there is. Uh, the difference uh, coming into 2020 is that he's more willing to take controversial positions uh, on empire and Middle East politics, and she is much more willing to get into the details of Wall Street financial shenanigans and the control of people's money. So that's why I think they would make a good team. Flip the coin, one goes for president, the other goes for vice president. Do you think that there are prominence in the Democratic Party, the fact that, you know, there are easily two of the three or four or five front runners in 2020. Um, do you think that means the Democratic Party, do you believe the Democratic Party has substantially shifted, has changed since 2000 or 2004, even 2008? It hasn't shifted in terms of its core control by the corporate Democrats who still control, who still control the Democratic National Committee who still controlled the apparatus at the state level. Uh, it's still under that control. And I think Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders better be pretty aware of that in the primary season. All kinds of dirty tricks can be played once they decide they want Joe Biden or someone that they've anointed. It is more dis disparate and more free thinking in terms of what people with the Democratic Party label on them are talking about. They're now talking about corporate crime, corporate welfare. Uh, they're talking about globalization, corporate globalization. In that sense, it's a healthy sign. But they're still on the outskirts. They're still on the edges of the party's power structure, which is still rooted heavily in New York City and, and Wall Street. When you say that there are dirty tricks that can be played, that it, it, it's still under corporate power. Does the ability of people like Warren and Sanders and now Ocasio-Cortez to, to rise to power rapidly, does it, does it make you think anything different about how the institutional structure of the party works? I mean, it, it seems to me that there's some tension between particularly the, the, the openness, actually in some ways of both parties, you can see Donald Trump as an example of this from a, a, an ideological side I like less, that the control of these parties seems to be very weakened to me. Whether or not it was there before, it does not seem to me that the people who thought they had a handle on it do now. Do you think that's wrong? No, they are losing control, but they still have control. Remember, we still have a winner-take-all situation. We don't have rank voting. Uh, we have an ability of whoever's in charge of the election machinery, say the primary in Nevada, and it's really close between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, 
and they count the votes with the pro-union Hillary Clinton counters in a casino, that they can flip it if, if it's a margin of two or three points. And that's pretty damaging. Are you allowed, Is your view that that happened? I would say it's presumptively that is what happened. And I think uh, a lot of that kind of shaving happened in Iowa. Uh, and they couldn't do it in New Hampshire. And Bernie won it in a landslide. That, that's a pretty that's a pretty serious allegation, but I think even that Sanders won more caucus states than he won primary states and in states where you had this kind of counting and these more informal mechanisms, he in general did better. Well, you see, that's another problem. That's another problem of equitable democracy. It's like the electoral college. You know, people run to get voters and they get the voters and the presidential vote comes down on one side and then they lose the office to someone who got fewer voters because the electoral college. Well, there are a lot of little electoral college type shenanigans in primary state laws, in ballot access laws, in how votes are counted, and when votes are counted, and which votes are counted, and when they come in from overseas. Uh, and that's why all the problem with vote counting should be viewed uh, from the example of Canada. Canada still has a paper ballot, and they know who wins and who doesn't by 11 o'clock at night. They're a pretty big country. We have a corrupt voting machine procurement system where the software is proprietarily owned by a corporation, which at one time was headed by a guy who favored George W. Bush, can you imagine? So it's a nightmare of our own making. So many of our problems in our country are nightmares of our own making. Do you think we're a better country than we were 50 years ago? In some ways, certainly. In, in terms of entryways, civil rights, civil liberties for people uh, is better. But certainly it's better environmentally, although there are new hazards that keep coming over the horizon. Uh, people are eating, if they want to, uh, more nutritious food. They have more nutritious choices, not just tip-top bread uh, in, in the supermarkets anymore. Uh, access to justice is being restricted. The criminal injustice system is worse, can you believe, than in the 60s and 70s. Look at the mass incarceration rates. Look at going from less than a million to several million people in jail in 30 years. So it's mixed. And we shouldn't start selecting the bad parts and then becoming pessimistic or just selecting the good parts and becoming Pollyannish, like a Harvard professor has in recent writings. What do you think of Howard Schultz running as an independent? I think uh, if he sticks to it, because he's a multi-billionaire, he will get regular media. He will be able to get on 50 state ballots. Whether he can stay on is another subject. He will get polls regularly, which means he'll get a chance to start popping up 5, 10, 15 percent in the polls the way Perot did. However, uh, he's up against a two-party duopoly. Perot got 19 million votes in 1992 and not a single electoral college vote, not one, shows you the final gateway protection for the two-party uh, duopoly. He can turn it into a three-way race. He will uh, provoke the political bigotry of being called a spoiler, 
by the Democrats. The polls may show he is pulling from liberal Republicans as well as Democrats. So he turns it into a three-way race. And then someone who's a multi-billionaire says, uh, three-way race? What about a four-way race? And Mark Cuban gets in. And then it's off to the races. I must say I predicted this. Years ago, people would say uh, to me, Ralph, is there ever going to be a viable third party? And I said, well, I'd like to see one from grassroots America, but it's more likely that it'll be initiated by a multi-billionaire. And that's what we're going to see from now on, by the way, Ezra, not just 2020. So I'm going to ask you, I will say this up front, zero questions about 2000 or 2004, just because I think I have nothing new to add to that conversation. But what I want to ask you about here is uh, a slightly more philosophical question. When does it make, when do you believe people should run for, speaking here of the presidency, but really in anything, inside the party versus try to mount an independent bid? Because I think with Trump and Sanders, there's some clear evidence that the parties can change quite a bit if you're running inside of them. And I think one question people have about Schultz is why is he running outside? What is he bringing to that that, that, that needs to happen through the dynamics of an, of an independent bid? What do you think are the conditions under which somebody should run inside the parties? And what are the conditions under which they should run outside? Well, if they look at history um, and they don't have a strong foothold inside one of the two major parties, they would say, huh, you know, small parties have started most of the uh, justice movements in America uh, inside the electoral arena. Um, the Liberty Party in 1840, uh, anti-slavery, the Women's Rights to Vote Party, the Populist Progressive Party, Labor Party, uh, and then 20th century. Almost everything that the two parties or one of them picked up as a major issue and implemented came from a third party. And more recently, you know, the Socialist Party of Norman Thomas, it was Social Security, unemployment, compensation, on and on, Medicare. Um, so if you have the historical reference as a motivator, you would have no trouble starting a third party. The only problem is in the last 30 years, that has changed. That has changed because the two parties have become much more rigid and bigoted against challenges from their flank, and the press doesn't cover the third party. Challenges from their flank, you mean challenges from a third party? Yeah, in, in part because of the presidential debate racket, which is a private company run by two parties, and they get the uh, cooperation of the network, so they have exclusive uh, relay of the uh, of the candidates, and they block access. They have this ridiculous 15% average polling uh, by five commercial polling companies owned by mass media companies before a third-party candidate can get on a national debate. It's absurd. Uh, but it may be absurd, but listen, in 2000, I spoke to the largest mass audiences of any presidential candidate that year, including Al Gore and George W. Bush. But I only reached 2% of the people I could have reached had I been on just one presidential debate. So it's the uh, extinction impact of third-party presidential candidates by just being kept off the national debates. And because the media knows that, they know they can't win. They, they cover them less and less. And 95% of the coverage of my campaigns where I had agendas that were uh, supported by majority polls, like health care and living wage, etc., 
I wasn't pushing UFOs. I had majoritarian agendas that were off the table on the part of the two major parties, Republican, Democrat. 95% of the coverage was, how's it feel to be a spoiler? Do you think you're a spoiler? Why are you being a spoiler? And I would say, what are you talking about? I'm challenging a spoiled, rotten political system, and you're accusing me of being a spoiler? So one of the things, um, without to get too much into the spoiler debate, one of the things that seems to me to be part of the reason that debate has gotten more intense, uh, as you put it, is that American politics has gotten closer. I had Frances Lee, who's a great political scientist, on the show a couple weeks ago. And something she was talking about is that for most of American history, you had a dominant party. For a long time, it was Republicans. And then it was in the post-Depression uh, and New Deal period, it was the Democrats. And now everything's very knife's edge. And the parties are very um, uh, polarized. So the idea that somebody could come in from the outside and tip it, when it's so close, it's very easy to tip. Um, and then conversely, the parties are also in a strange way opening up. Again, Donald Trump, I think, is an example of this. Bernie Sanders, to some degree, an example from the other side. And so there's a sense that more can be done inside the parties and that there's more danger uh, running outside of them because you'll inevitably probably draw from whichever side you're closer to. And that that seems to be the the kind of cocktail that makes this worse. Um, I'm a fan of things like ranked choice voting and proportional representation and other things that would make uh, that would open up the system a little bit. But in the absence of them, that seems to me to be why this gets so much hotter. Well, let me disagree with a little bit of what you said, because the polarization of the two major parties is caused by the two major parties because they've divided the country up. And the Democrats, for example, wrote off half the country. They don't uh, in the presidential campaigns. They don't campaign in Alabama, Mississippi, uh, Georgia, Texas. And you know what happens when that occurs? It shrivels the party all the way down to the elected dog catcher, right down to the municipal level. Ben Barnes, the boy wonder of Texas Democratic politics years ago, told me that when the Democrats wrote off Texas, they destroyed the Democratic Party at the congressional level and at the mayorly level, the governor level, and at the town council level. So they created the red state, blue state polarization. Number two, they decided to campaign on divisive issues like reproductive rights or school prayer or, or things, things of, of that intensity. And they ignored at least 25 areas of convergence and change in this country supported by liberals and conservatives down at the grassroots of America. Look at the polls for a higher minimum wage. Look at the polls for Medicare for all without even one major party promoting it. Oh, but that's not true that that's not true that neither party promotes a higher minimum wage. That's on the Democratic agenda in every election I've ever covered. Just recently, for example, the Democratic Party uh, under Obama promised $9.50 in 2008 to occur by 2011. He never touched it. He never talked about it. I know because I'm trying to get everybody from the AFL-CIO to uh, Congressman George Miller uh, to get on with minimum wage, to have hearings and minimum wage, to push the Republicans up against the wall when they controlled the Congress on minimum wage. For Hillary Clinton came in last of a prominent Democrat, Democrat to sponsor a modest minimum wage of $10.10. If the Democrats made living wage 
a national issue again and again, front burner. They would not have lost the presidential campaigns. There were 30 million workers at any given time making less in inflation-adjusted wages uh, than they made in 1968. And a lot of those workers didn't see any need to vote because it didn't mean anything to them. Instead, they could have said, workers, you've earned it. You deserve it. Go vote for a raise. Go vote for a raise. So I'll they take, didn't do I'll, it. So I will. I'll take the other side of this for a minute. I agree in part on this, I think. I certainly agree that you can have positions that do more for working class people than the Democrats have had and certainly than the Republicans have had. But a, a place where I really diverge on this theory of politics, and, and I, I find it actually quite frustrating, is that the two parties aren't close on this stuff. Um, you know, you, you could say, I, I don't remember the exact history of when the Obama administration prioritized or pushed minimum wage pushes and when they didn't. I know they pushed quite a number of them, but they had a gigantic raft of proposals from expansions of the child tax credits and the extensions of TANF to Obamacare itself, which was a massive um, transfer of bill- of hundreds of billions and over um, and over decades, trillions of dollars from richer Americans uh, down to people who actually needed it in their health insurance. I don't think it is the case that the public is so confused over which party wants to move in a direction where you would be redistributing money to the middle class or to the working class. I, I look at polls on this all the time, and people know what's going on. Now you could say the Democrats could go further, and fair enough, and some of them, like Bernie Sanders, do. But there, there is this consistent view of the electorate that the electorate actually holds all of whoever is speaking my opinions. And if only Democrats would say it, like, I saw a poll and then it would all change. I mean, look, Medicare for All is a good example of this. I'm a supporter of Medicare for All. But Kaiser just did a poll, and it shows that if you poll Medicare for All, um, you get majority support. Um, not huge, but you get it. Then if you say it'll raise taxes, you don't get majority support. And if you say it'll mean you don't have private health insurance, you get huge majority disapproval. And so oftentimes people say, oh, you know, actually everybody agrees with me. But then if you just tweak the poll a bit or use any of the counter arguments that will emerge – it changes. I I think that the American public is harder to convince in that and knows what they think a little bit more deeply than that vision of politics often gives them credit for. The problem is there are no mass movements in these areas. The labor movement is not a mass movement anymore. And the Democrats, you know, they've written off half the country and they're not really a mass movement in the way they used to be on some issues under Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It's all about the intensity, visibility and repetition of redirections in our country. It's not enough to have a throwaway phrase on minimum wage, uh, but the main issues you have to deal with are military budget, peace, you know, through strength. Are you for a bigger military budget? Well, the reason why the Democrats get derailed on public works and infrastructure investment, which really has a huge support, right, back home, the Chamber of Commerce, the workers, the small business. Who doesn't want the roads repaired? Who doesn't want a new drinking water sewage system? Uh, who doesn't want the library restored or community health clinics? The reason why they get re- derailed on that, which is a great vote getter, by the way, because it's jobs that pay well that can't be exported abroad, is they're all hung up on not challenging the military budget. It's become a no-no since Senator Proxmire used to challenge it in public hearings. The Democrats and Republicans, they, they just whiffed through Congress with har- hardly any scrutiny. You mean to get uh, the money from the military budget to do these other things? Yes. The military budget now, with no known major enemy, unless we want to create them around the world, is 55% of the operating budget of the federal government. 
55 percent. You're talking about non you're talking about non-mandatory spending. We're talking about all the departmental and agency budget. Yeah, I often say, called. and I'm not the first one to come up with this, that the federal government is an insurance company with a standing army. And that if you're getting money, you have to get it from one of those two places. You're either getting it from the big insurance programs, which together are bigger than the military budget, um, or you're getting it from the military budget. Or if you're not doing that, you're cutting well, but, a lot but, of much smaller things. But Ezra, they don't, they're not supposed to compete with one another. No, I agree with that. O- operating well, budgets are supposed to compete with well, one, one another. Well, one, I think, difference I have on on actually the political philosophy you're putting out here, and maybe even puts me a bit to the left on uh, of you, is some of these public infrastructure and and you know getting water cleaned up and 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 that set of priorities, I would not at all add that to a confrontation with the military. If you don't like, it's not clear to me that you need to pay for that in real time. Um, maybe you want to, and then you can increase taxes on rich people or whatever it might be. But also, I'm not sure you do. Uh, I'm having a conversation on the podcast in a couple of weeks. It's going to be all about this. But the question of how much real time financing you need is an open one. And it's one where I think that Democrats have been possibly to their detriment, to the detriment of a bunch of their issues, a lot more responsible than the right. But maybe you don't need to be quite that. Um, uh, you're, you're quite right there. But let's get let's flesh out what you're saying. Mm-hmm. If you don't block tax cuts for the rich that create huge bit deficits, then it's hard to raise capital for public works because they say, oh, you're adding to the deficit. You see, so one is connected to the other, even though investment in public works, which creates a deficit, let's say, is an investment. You get a return on capital. But a huge tax cut for multinationals and the super rich, you're not getting any return on capital. They are not job creators, as subsequent studies to the tax cut by Trump have shown uh, relentlessly. And then the other thing, which people don't talk about, is it isn't just a military budget sucking money out of, say, a public works budget. They're sucking engineering talent. They're sucking scientific talent. They're doing what a professor of industrial engineering at Columbia pointed out. They are taking rare technological and scientific research away from the civilian economy. So when New York City put out for bid uh, new subway cars uh, a number of years ago, they didn't get a single bid from a U.S. company. Never mind the U.S. company lost a bid. They didn't even submit a bid. We've lost our civilian technology here because we're so proficient in military technology and all that's uh, uh, associated with it. So th- there's a lot of aspects here to being a militarized society or a civilized society waging peace. If you could pass any bill, if you just had, if you had one shot, right, and recognizing bills can become, I don't mean like, well, I put it all in one bill, but, you know, any any one policy. What do you think is the one policy that would make the most difference? Uh, I don't think there is one policy that would make the most difference. But you only got one. Here, here, here's, here's my one policy, since you've provoked me. It would be to shift power from the few to the many in a 10-point program, facilitating labor unions, consumer cooperatives, getting people their own audience network on radio and TV, a few hours a day reverting to public airways to organize uh, media uh, cooperatives, empowering uh, small taxpayers to have standing to sue, to challenge uh, uh, privileged tax escapes by the super rich and the corporations. It's all shift to power. I would have an empowerment agenda 
in Congress. So, and and then the flip side of this, um, there's a question of what the government should do and, and, and maybe what the private sector should undo. Something you've written about in some of your books is the feeling that, or the belief, I'm sorry, that too much of American life has been commercialized. What are some spaces where you would carve out more space from commercialization? Well, I think a survival uh, for any democratic society is commercial-free zones. So elections should not be for sale. Government should not be for sale. Childhood should not be for sale. The commercial exploitation of childhood is such that I got a standing ovation once denouncing the electronic child molesters of our children uh, from a extreme evangelical audience. So childhood should not be for sale. There are certain aspects of our environment should not be for sale. For example, we should not corporatize public parks, national forests, uh, etc. I think that the genetical genetic area should not be for sale. Um, so th- there are certain areas that should be public education should not be commercialized. Very heavily commercialized now. Uh, so. Uh, I believe in public libraries, not libraries part part of uh, uh, buildings that have supermarkets and movie houses. Uh, so the, the, those are the uh, those are the uh, areas that should be commercially free zones. Now, what's happened in the last fifty years is that commercialism has invaded these zones tremendously. When I was growing up, it was unheard of for corporations to direct market to kids bypassing parental authority and supervision, other than maybe bubblegum. Now it's open season. It's a multi-hundred billion dollar business. They get kids age four, five, six, seven, eight. Um, they, they shape their diets. They shape their military toys. They shape cosmetics for girls at age five, on and on. And then they get them to be participants in violent programming and, and interactive violent TV. This would be unheard of years ago. They'd be run out of town. So we have commercialized our society in defiance of the wisdom of all organized religions going back over 2,000 years. Every one of them warned their believers against giving too much power to the merchant class. Why? Because the merchant class is a monoculture. It is maniacally focused on profiteering, on enrichment at the expense of all other values. They will trample them, co-opt them, destroy them, degrade them, exploit them. And so it goes back many, many, many hundreds of years. And that's why I say the global corporations all about commercializing everything. They're looking at that five, six hundred billion dollar public school budget as an investment opportunity. I mean, there, there isn't anything they don't want to commercialize. Nothing, not even, not even our genetic inheritance, not even our redwood trees that are 1,800 years old. They'd cut them down in a minute. So I hate then to, to end the podcast on a commercial note, but the, the question we always finish on is, what are three books you've read that have influenced you that you would, that you would recommend to others? And they can also, of course, get them from the library. Well, I mean, uh, I, I I think very much of a book that showed how executive pay compensation distorts the whole priorities of these large corporations by leading to 
trillions of dollars of wasteful stock buybacks to increase the metrics for executive compensation. So I would recommend the CEO pay machine by Steve Clifford, who was actually on a number of these corporate compensation committees. Uh, I think Michael Lewis has opened up a literary appeal of talking about government public services. Uh, I think Alan Hirsch's very clear book called Impeaching the President, Past, Present, and Future is a very educational, nonpartisan uh, paperback that just uh, came out. I think uh, Nassim Nicholas Talib's book, he's the original author of uh, Black Swan, but he wrote a book called Skin in the Game, where he basically said that people in power will much more likely abuse power if they don't have skin in the game, like politicians and corporate executives and corporate immunities and impunities. I like the more recent book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshona Zuboff on the impact of the Facebooks and the Googles. And personally, I like my brand new fable called How the Rats Reformed the Congress, because I want to try to make people laugh enough to be serious, laugh themselves seriously into organizing Congress watchdog groups in every congressional district, the 1% of the Congress reflecting public opinion, the 1% of the people reflecting public opinion, organized as a civic hobby, a civic Congress watchdog hobby, to summon the senators and representatives to their periodic town meetings and send them back with their instructions on behalf of the people. And the ratsreformthecongress.org website gives serious instruction on how to start a Congress Watch local and build it into a decisive impact on issues as supported by left and right conservatives and liberals down where America lives, works, and raises their families. Ratsreformcongress.org. Ralph Nader, thank you very much. Thank you, Ezra Klein, for treating subjects in America seriously for a change. Thank you, Mr. Nader, for being here. Thank you to Topher Ruth at UC Berkeley, to Jeff Gelb, Vox Media, Julian Weinberger, uh, my producer. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. <laughs>